I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Now, I hope you know Rebel Radio is supported by Audible. Love them for that. You know, if you talk to most people about living in L.A., they'll say the worst thing about it is the traffic. You know, me, I really don't mind the traffic because I use it as my listening time. I listen to books on Audible. And um, it's really changed my, my career, my whole reading, uh, all of that. There's an unbeatable selection of books on Audible. I listen to fiction, a lot of mysteries, business books, personal growth, biographies. I just finished a great book called Let's Go Crazy, Prince and the Making of Purple Rain, written by Alan Light. It's a, it's, if you're a Prince fan, you got to get into that one. I'm about to start on the drop by Dennis Lehane, which uh, which looks cool. I mean, I go through like a book a week, something something crazy like that, because I use my time in the car, in the gym, on the bike, whenever I'm on a conference call, ignoring everybody. I'm listening to Audible. Go to Audible and get a free audiobook uh, with a 30-day trial. Audible.com/rebel. That's a special code only for fans of Rebel Radio. Because we love you, we hook you up. Audible.com slash Rebel. What's up? This is Thess One from People on Stairs and many other things. Uh, checking out Rebel Radio, the best. So stay tuned. And yeah, fuck you, Josh. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh? Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where we talk to the rebels who are shaping our culture. We learn how they do it, why they do it, and how you can get a little piece of the pie for yourself. I'm your host, Josh Levine. My guest this week is Thez One, one half of People Under the Stairs. He's the he's a rapper, he's the producer, he's the manager, he designs the merch, he runs all of the business. He's a real DIY type of dude, and he's gonna tell us 
how he's built a business that's uh, continued to thrive over the years, um, how they keep making music after there's no more genres. Um, he's going to tell us a little bit about his beef with Will I Am and why competition is good for creativity right after our EDM.com track of the week. Yeah. We got to preserve this thing we call hip hop, man. I was born into this. Uh. 24/7 rapping hip hop, man. 24/7 never going pop, boy. 24/7 rapping hip hop, man. 24/7 never going pop, boy. They say that I'm odd. Well, I wouldn't disagree. I put that on my mama. Heavy verses like a tree. Trace the roots, blaze the booth like Rap City. Who trying to rap with me? My rap them rabble quickly in a split second. I rip records like a disc drive. Pick five rappers, see how many survive. I give them clarity. Nothing like that memory cloud. Such a disparity. I'm one I like the illest around. I do it carefully. Every bar master, the crafted for purchase. Even if you don't buy it, I still deserve it. And I'm still imperfect. This whip and snapper still in verses. Get your feelings hurt. Ain't no resistance, it's disturbance. This that picture perfect. Splitting image of the emperor M16 to my 16s The finisher ever since 17 I've been repping cleaner than cinema Sending a message to rappers Sensitive as a fibula Give us a break Remove your CDs and tapes I sign notaries vocally With the scripts that I make Who wanna rap with it? Yo, that was Jay Nolan with 24-7 The EDM.com track of the week Rebel Radio is the only show That brings you new music every week From our friends over at EDM.com So get over there Check out some new music and uh, now let's get into the interview with says one. I pull the veil like orange pills, the laws will. My friends floating like pirates of Caribbean. Tales of broken spirits only mended through a singing racial gun. I appreciate you being here, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad to see you still doing it. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of was following you guys in the early days. You know, I used to work at Herb Magazine. Uh, doing marketing and, and obviously they were big fans. Yeah, yeah. We think you know, it was we a, lot yeah, a lot of love. A lot of love back in the day. Um, God, I miss those days too. Yeah. I mean, the thing I don't miss about those days is we used to have to, we used to finish a song or a record and then it wouldn't get released for like six months because they had the right. service print and yeah. then it would take like two months to like get all in. For sure. So we would make songs and then not hear them for like, you know, five months and yeah. then all of a sudden it would be a single. Yeah, yeah. And now and it's, it's already like, old to you. Yeah. And yeah. now like if you make a song, it's on SoundCloud on Friday. Right. You know? Yeah. Different time frame. So crazy. Well, it seems like everything's changed since back then. Yeah. Um, what about, like, so you guys, I mean, I want to get into some of your history and, and that, but I was thinking on the way here about just, you know, you guys were kind of like, uh, you know, this staple of this, this underground scene, yeah. you know, here on the West Coast for sure and, and all over. Mm. And, it, like, what does that even mean today to be <laughs> underground hip hop and, like... I mean, I would say, honestly, it's probably... For me, me personally, it's the last thing I would want someone to tack on to the front of our name, you know, sure. um, because I feel like it's easy to marginalize a group yeah. as an underground hip hop group. And, and in 2017, you know, I think partly what has happened since print has gone away and since, and since kind of, you know, we're living in like a post-apocalyptic entertainment industry now mm. world. And I feel like the consumers the fans don't place as much of an emphasis on genre sure. anymore. Yeah. I mean, I know I don't. You For know, sure. like if you were to go into my phone, you you could skip through what I've been listening to and it's not it's not all underground hip hop. In fact, if anything, it's not hip hop 
or underground hip hop at all. You know, like there are certain things that might fall into it, but you know, I mean, I'd be more inclined to listen to, uh, you know, like Tori Moi or like, you know, like independent rock stuff or mm -hmm. um, Grizzly Bear or whatever. Like I'm, I'm, I have a huge arc of what I'm exposed to now. And I, and it wasn't like that in 1998 when I just was like, yeah, I yeah, am an underground hip hop fan. Right. So for me, you know, for us, for people on the stairs or what I do musically, I think it's more beneficial to just sort of drop, to, to, to kind of push away from underground hip hop or hip hop at all and just kind of be an act because yeah. I, I feel like it opens you up to fans and it's just really hard to fit in a genre anymore. And then and if you do fit into a genre, then you have to kind of, you have to use all the sort of like tropes of the genre. Like, right. you know, like, oh, it's underground hip hop and it's like drama stab horns and, and scratching and, and like, you yeah. know, it doesn't allow us to evolve as, as musicians within that style of music. Sure. So. Well, that's one of the things I, I always get hung up on is like, so genre, yeah, across music, I think right. is just becoming less important. Yeah. And yet, you know, there's a, from your, the way you describe it is that it's limiting, right? But, but I think the flip side to that is that it's, you know, if you identified in 19, you know, right. 98 as an underground hip hop act, you kind of knew what to do. That's true. Like you had a limited <laughs> palette of right. sounds and, and topics. Yeah. And all of that, right? It's easy to find your fan base. It's yeah. easy to get discovered. It's easy to book shows because they're like, right. we have a underground hip hop act coming to town. Exactly. And, you know, and, and so, yeah, that was, that was the huge benefit of it. And then the other thing was, you know, it, I think it was easier for people to be fans mm -hmm. of a certain thing because they were mm -hmm. like, you know, if you were a dance music fan, you're like, I like dance music. If you were a rock music fan, you're like, I like rock music. Now you get rock music with dance music in right. it. and yeah, it's yeah. all like and everything's just been smeared and so you don't know what to hate anymore. Exactly. And like <laughs> you don't know how to find a fan anymore, you know? Well, you know, people that listen to the show have have heard me ask this question, but you know, from the fan side, what what's what does that do now? Right, cuz when I was a hip hop fan growing up, right. I knew how to dress. Right. I knew the slang to use. Right, right. Like it came with, it was a package deal. You knew the handshake. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. you knew who to hang out with. Right. At school or if you went to a party, you'd see the certain sneakers. Right. And you're like, okay, I'm, that's my dude right, right there. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. And now it's like all the, you know, all those walls are down. Yeah. So what are fans supposed to do? I think on one hand, well, this, this is, this is the good and the bad thing, right? Like on one hand, I think at, at its very best, people are encouraged, fans, music lovers are encouraged to just like what they like. Yeah. But that whole idea is obviously being undermined by the genius, the algorithms, uh -huh. the, the, yeah, the yeah. things that get pushed to you based upon what they think you'll like. For sure. Which means that there's a, there's a perception that you're actually choosing what you're listening to. But as we both know, being veterans in the industry, there's always something being fed to you in yeah. a certain way. And um, well, I, I just heard I was listening to an interview on the way here on Combat Jack with uh -huh. uh, Steve Rifkin, uh -huh. who's old record promoter guy, right. label guy, and he was just talking about I know I forget what record it was, but oh, Akon, which was his biggest right. hit, and he was like, I got that record, and I just decided I was going to shove it down people's throats for a year <laughs> until it broke. <laughs> right. And it became his biggest hit of his career. Right. And like, but that's not a unique story. That's what the record industry is set up to do. Yeah. Is keep, 
keep showing you something until you like it. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it's, adver it's as much advertising and lifestyle marketing as it is just music in anymore. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, like, I, th I think I read this morning, like Gucci Mane got another $10 million Saw deal. That. Yeah. And part of me thinks what, where is, you know, like the old school part of me goes, where's the 10 million coming? Right. How are they going to generate yeah. 10 million in recoupables when no one buys music anymore? But then I have to remind myself that the real value is in content. It's in the advertising that goes in the front of the video. It's, right. It's all of these subversive ways that we're being marketed to as sure. music fans, yeah. you know, and the music is secondary. So, you know, in terms of going back to like genre and like what people like, I think there, there's, there's the idea that with streaming music, with playlists, with Pandora, that you are, that it's not being manipulated, that mm. you're in control of, of yeah. it. But I, but I think as we know, it, there's always manipulation going For on. For sure. For sure. And that's a bummer. Well, I want to go back to how it got started for you. Um, do, you, do you remember the first record you ever bought? First record I ever bought, uh, man. I I remember taking my parents like records that were my parents' records and kind of like making them mine. And so I had this. I had this. Uh, what was the, what's the one that like? Well, I, rem blew I, your mind. I remember. Well, it was when I realized what sampling was. So uh -huh. like there was the there was this Big Daddy Kane song. And, and they had like the whole, I didn't know what it was, but I remember listening to my parents' records and hearing the staple singer, oh, like yeah. Sam going like, Big Daddy. And I was like, oh, I can't believe that that, that's they they somehow you know and then taking the the forty five the stable singer forty five and kind of bringing it back and mm -hmm. putting what I had seen in Beat Street and Wild Style putting that all together and going oh damn this is like this is a thing yeah and I love this music and you know um, that was really when I wanted to become a producer I was super young because I didn't see myself like I saw rappers as being like LL Cool J right. and like these guys that stood on top of like yeah it didn't seem attainable no they were like they, you know jumped on turntables and grabbed dudes by the neck and I and I was a fan <laughs> but I didn't ever think that I would ever do that right so I, I saw myself as always being kind of a music guy and then that that led me down a road where I was buying tons of tons of uh just music you know being exposed to music buying tapes, going to Music Plus, going to, you know, wherever I could to, to get. And I spent all my money on music when I was a kid. And then uh, and I saved up and got a sampler. And, you know, I just, it was, it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. Like everything else I did in my life was just, it was just trying to help me attain this goal of, of buying equipment and learning how to do it. And, that's cool. And making beats. And yeah, that's all I ever wanted to do. And were you just making beats by yourself or was somebody teaching you? No, I, I just was kind of figuring it out as I went. Yeah. And then when I met, when I was in high school, I met Double K, who was my partner and people mm -hmm. on the stairs. He was at Hamilton and I was at Loyola. Okay. And the, the guys that I knew at Loyola who knew him, they were like, yeah, there's this guy that makes beats at Hamilton. He's better than you. And so we, they had set up this crosstown rivalry between yeah. us. And when we finally met at Martin's Records, we had a whole like beat showdown. Uh -huh. And I think we, we both realized that day that we, we could talk about music to each other that we couldn't talk about to other people. Right. Like we could talk about Roy Ayers and Bob James and this and that at the same time talking about the Beat Nuts and mm -hmm. Wu-Tang and whatever. And a lot of people I knew weren't into music like that. So that 
created a competitive, it was an arms race between him and I, who could make the most beats, the best beats. And that yeah. competition, out of that competition, we finally realized that we didn't want to give what we were making to other people. Mm. Because the MCs that we were giving beats to at the time, the industry stuff we were doing, we, I think we both could already see us getting taken advantage of. You know, there were independent labels we were giving beats to, indep- yeah. you know, each of us on our own, and we sure. were both getting our ass handed to us. Yeah. And so finally we were like, you know what, we're just gonna like, we're just gonna rap over these and release it ourselves. Because it's better than selling this stuff to labels and losing all control over it. And, and that was kind of how the group started. And then, you know, So where did that, because uh, earlier you say you didn't, you didn't have the confidence that you could rap, right? Yeah. And you didn't think that that was available to you. Right. So what, what changed? Uh, I mean, I think what changed was, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't see any Latino rappers really. Yeah. that I felt were, were, were worth anything. So I had this sort of notion in my head that it was like, there were just, it was like these dudes from New York and from LA and I, I didn't fit into that. And yeah. you know, I came from a like lower middle class household. Like it wasn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, I was like, I'm not an NWA. Like I don't, you know, right. but I can make music. Right. And then, you know, seeing like the Beat Nuts and Curious and other like Latino rappers come out and I was like, oh man, maybe like there is a, there is a lane. Like it's not so much about and underground hip-hop was more diverse right. than commercial hip-hop. For sure. Once you check, start the analysis. Why am I placed in a situation whack as this? Inquiring mind want to know. Curious George, creativity from the mind and then so. At times I think I'm nice. And that was one of the things that we felt early on was that the A&Rs and the people we were dealing with in the industry, they were looking for a certain look mm-hmm. in addition to mm-hmm. the music. Yeah. And it just, it was nauseating to us. So, so we started flying that underground flag really hard because we felt like, you know, we didn't fit in. Yeah. And so the name, we took the name People Under the Stairs kind of regrettably at the time because we were like, yeah, man, People Under the Stairs, we're underground. We don't, right. you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. And... As you know, you, you know, like that at the time, the harder you rode for the under, like it meant it meant something to yeah. to really be a part of that. that yeah. You know, we would go to to Gavin and Rap Sheet, and we would go to all these conventions, and we would be the we'd be the ones that were in the front row at all every show that came through, and, mm-hmm. and just studying how things went down, and um, and trying to learn from the mistakes that we saw Loud Records making or other, you know, just trying to learn from what was happening and start our own label. You know, what was uh. Well, first, what what was so thinking about Latino hip hop? Like, what was the first record that you that like opened your eyes to that? I mean, there were a couple of big ones like Cypress Hill, obviously. Yeah. Um, just just seeing more, I think, more diversity in underground, like Curious, Cypress Hill, Beating Us, like all that sort of stuff that started kind of coming around in the early '90s. Um, I know there was you know Kid Frost and other mm-hmm. stuff prior to that, but I also didn't feel like I felt. I fell into the sort of mentirosa. Yeah, I didn't. It wasn't good. Like I was like, yeah, it's like like in the whole like Chicano rap scene existed, but I didn't feel like I fit into that either. I I just felt like I was a rap fan, and um, and so I think you know there was. I mean, that definitely felt like ghettoized. Yeah, like to its own thing, right? Like you know, Kid Frost and Mellow Man Ace, right? uh, What were those kids? 
lighter shade of brown. Yeah, lighter shade of brown. Yeah. Like it definitely felt like this isn't regular hip hop. Like it's its own thing. Exactly. It was an ethnic sub genre yeah. of hip hop, and yeah. I and you know I didn't want to I didn't want to have any part of of that yeah. either because that that you know that was just as bad as as any other kind of like pandering. Night, Lord Radio and Hellbop on the Bay Bridge faded. Trying to find Smiley's house. Thank God we made it. Yo, Blunt's brought in beats, keep it low through the streets. So when you talk about seeing like loud records, what's an example of a mistake they were making? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily like a mistake because they released some great stuff. But, you know, knowing people who were like kind of going through the process of trying to get signed. Yeah. And, you know, we were friends with like, like we knew like Big B and all those guys. We looked up to them. But I saw the the sort of politics, you know, like seeing people's records get shelved yeah. or seeing um, or like, you know, just seeing like, you know, large professor sign to like Geffen and having like the record shelf, things like that. Yeah. Um, it was uh, scary, you know, like because we were trying we wanted to be a part of the industry, but we also didn't want to be controlled by a label, right. whether it be like delicious vinyl or like any of these. Like, we were just like very cautious. And so, you know, we just we're flying that underground flag really hard, maybe a little too hard. Cause then we started yeah. looking at anyone who got signed as being like a sellout. Of course. And I, I'm not sure in retrospect if that's necessarily true either. Cause there mm -hmm. were a lot of good people in the industry who I think were trying to help the artists. But you know, like my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife was working at, um, Oh God, what was it? Uh, American, uh -huh. Def, Def American, Def American. Yeah. And she had friends at wild west and like whatever. And you know, I mean, it was just the low-key horror stories, things yeah. that weren't like public information, but like, right. you know, just really scary stuff that was happening to artists. And, sure. and of course, people signing their life away in deals and not really realizing, you know, what was happening. So, so when you thought about that and starting your own label, like, what is the, you know, tell me about now, like, what does it mean to be a label and what, what you know, what right. is that, what value does that create in the, in the ecosystem? I mean, you know, then being a label meant that you had an account at a pressing plant that right. you had, you were able to, to give terms to distributors Yeah. you were like dropping product off net 90 and like, right. you were running a, you were running a business sure. uh, and you had accounts receivable and all this sort of stuff. Now with digital distribution and SoundCloud and, and, you know, TuneCore and all these sort of things, it, I don't think it, it doesn't, it's not even the same thing anymore. You know, you could say, hey, sure. I'm running a record label. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Like, yeah. I put stuff up on SoundCloud for people. Right. So. You're like a webmaster. Yeah, you're a webmaster. You're, you're <laughs> a, you run, you manage a social media account where right. you put a bunch of photos up. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we signed with Ohm Records uh -huh. kind of soon after we released our stuff independently. Then we were off Ohm Records. And we've, we've, we, they were like an independent label, but like a big ass independent label. Right. And, uh, you know. We benefited some from what they, what the infrastructure they were able to provide. Like they had distribution channels, and I soon realized that, like, when Music Plus and Tower Records and that whole thing started to fall, I'm like, damn, how are we gonna sell? How are we gonna distribute? How are we mm -hmm. gonna, you know? And I had a deal with Wea, but I was like, I couldn't even like make enough product to get to Wea to all, you know, like they were, right. they were just like laughing at me, like, what do you, you know? So labels were important when physical really mattered, but now it's like, I know like kids who are 16 who are like, yeah, I run a record label. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm like, oh, tight. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Sure. You know, it's good. Good for you. <laughs> I don't, you know, for me running the label now, what I do, it means, you know, manufacturing merchandise. It means uh, controlling the digital rights to everything, making sure that everything's in place, filing the appropriate paperwork with Sound Exchange and ASCAP and all these, just, yeah, you know, making sure that you're there when a licensing request comes through and that you're handling things in a prompt fashion. And I think that's something that the younger generation doesn't quite understand yet. Well, I think that's interesting because the, you know, to me, the untold story of the music business is just how hard it has always been for the people that make music to get paid from it. Yeah. Right. And whether that was, you know, shady, like straight up just people robbing them. Right. Which has happened. Right. You know, year it happens every year or just like the confusing distribution networks and all of that right and so now you know with all best intentions it's still really difficult to figure out how much money you're supposed to get from youtube and from yeah all these different services and right yeah and i think the because average... because you know shit just now gets out there and then you have these collection companies that gotta go find it right and id the files and all that shit and i think artists don't younger artists now don't realize that it is, I, and I had a hard time wrapping my head around this, that you can monetize content. Yeah. That Gucci Mane is worth $10 million. It's just not $10 million in record, in like right. tangible record sales. Sure. So it's easy for young artists to sign a 360 deal and get taken advantage of in a way they can't even fathom because mm -hmm. they don't realize that the McDonald's commercial that runs at the head of their YouTube clip is generating revenue that's being collected by the person who, you know. Yeah. And those those secondary streams of revenue that are coming in from all these different directions, if someone's in a position to collect them, yeah, you can still. I mean, the industry still exists, you know. Mm -hmm. We're in a mm -hmm. new studio. Like, yeah, someone's yeah, making yeah. money. Yeah. Um, well, and all the news is about how now it's growing and it's bounced back and it's, right. you right. know. Yeah, so, I mean. Not necessarily for the artists. No, I mean, artists are still, you know. I mean, I, I mentor a, a handful of younger artists, you know, and I'm, always cautious to like, I, you know, I try not to tell them too much because these kids nowadays, you, you tell them something and they immediately kind of shut, <laughs> shut down. And I, and I respect that because like the things I experienced in the industry, a lot of the knowledge I have from the nineties and the early two thousands is completely useless. Sure. You know, like for instance, we used to have to pay for music videos. Right. These kids don't pay for music videos. Like their friend yeah. has a 70 yeah, and, and they make them yeah. and they're out and they're making videos, like a hundred videos, generating content. And my old ass, when I'm like, okay, we need to make a music video. And right. I'm like, oh, what's our budget and yeah, what's yeah, our yeah. storyboard? And it's, it's it, it, for me, it still seems like this massive undertaking. And for these kids, it's run and gun. Yeah. And um, there's definitely, that helps them navigate the sort of, you know, I guess the world we live in now. And it makes me sort of less apt at, you know, cause I'm, I'm like, an album every two years, right. a big music video, a big single release, like, and that's just such an archaic, like, irrelevant business model. For sure. You know, so yeah. I think those of us who are still around and are still running the same labels, we've had to, like, really change how we look at things, how we yeah. operate, you know. So it's not like, you know, you, you go into, like, the business side almost more out of necessity, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, going back to back in the day, you could just be an artist. Yeah. You get your advance, you get carted around, you come into a nice studio. Yeah. 
and then you just sit back and wait or you tour. Was there a break that you remember as, you know, as an artist when like, you, you know, you hit a point where everything got easier or you? Um, nah, everything's been tough. Yeah. It's, I feel, I mean, I still work like at night. I have kids now, you know, I put my kids to bed sure. and, and I, and I'll stay up and work. Yeah. And when I say work, it's, it's not always the same thing. It may be working in the studio, but I'm not always just working in the studio. Sometimes I'm have an Excel spreadsheet and I'm doing sound exchange right royalty. Like I'm, yeah. or I'm designing a t-shirt for merch and putting it on the website and like whatever and, and doing all these things that'll help make sure that we have the money to stay in the studio and keep working. So how do you keep the business from interfering with the, with the art? Um, I think one of the things that have, that's helped, you know, us and what I do is I realize that the business is generated from the fans and the fans are generated from the art. Yeah. So I think it's really easy for some people to start chasing one or the other too hard and not have that balance or forget maybe why someone might be buying a t-shirt or a sweatshirt. And I try to always remind myself that, you know, they're here for the music first. Mm-hmm. So in this day and age, if that means we give away the music for free and we pick up money from these other things, that's what it has to do. Because we can't have any barrier of entry to the music. Like, you know, you can't be Metallica fighting the inevitable march of progress. You right. know, like they, I think watching that un- unfold in the mid 2000s and watching artists end up on the wrong side. Yeah of that argument and making, and basically being at odds with their fans, telling their fans like, yeah. I know you like your music, but like F you guys, like yeah. don't share it, don't, you yeah. know. That was short-sighted business-wise. Of course. So, you know, I try, to, I try to always remind myself everything I do, you know, the fans are here because of the music, give them the music, the other stuff will come. And then when it comes to selling other things to them, merchandise or whatever, keeping it personal, keeping it, um, you know, making sure that I don't take advantage of them. Like I don't, I don't put up vinyl for pre-sale and then order the vinyl when I get the money. Mm-hmm. Like I order the vinyl, wait mm-hmm. two months, put the vinyl up for sale and ship it in a week or two. Right. You know, I think there's a lot of things that people do nowadays, especially where I read it, I read about it or I see it happening. And I'm just like, man, this is not good. And it hurts all of us, all of our trust with our fans, you know? Yeah. Or even like dumb stuff like the antisocial social club not shipping orders for like six months or whatever. Right. It's like, damn, dude, you guys had, you have half a million dollars in orders you haven't shipped in a way that affects all of us who are doing online sort of like limited sales and, you know, releases and stuff. But I think that's a good example. I was just at ComplexCon this weekend. Okay. And like last year, antisocial social club was like just blew up out of nowhere mm-hmm. like right around right. that time it was right before that but then there at the show they had the booth with undefeated and it right. was just like so when they had the pink uh the pink car in the booth or yeah it was a the, it was a camo yeah that's yeah, it, yeah. yeah um uh and then this year it's gone they're in, yeah. i mean they're, they're in big trouble right now yeah you know? there's like, like a few people walking around in in the shirts but yeah but you could tell that that moment was over for them and there's like there's a petition going around right now that they're trying to get to like the board of commerce and equal, like to to go after them really yeah because wow. it's like we're not talking 
a few orders. We're not talking, you know, yeah. $60,000. Yeah. We're talking like a half million to a million dollars. Yeah, and as someone who, you know, is running a brand that is through our music and whatever, sure. um, watching that unfold, it's, it's basically, again, it's one of those things where like, here's what I have to make sure we never end up in this position. Yeah. Because the trust that we have from e-commerce and our fans and all that stuff, like that's, that's everything, yeah. you know? And like, and if you, you blow that, like, like you said, like it'll go down right. quick. And yeah. uh, so, so what happens? Like, you know, if I just looked on paper, like, you know, you're artist, producer, um, most people have, most, most people in your position have mm -hmm. such a little understanding of their business, right? And they, yeah. they show up an hour late and they're high and they're like, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all these cliches, but they're right, true right. in a lot of cases. For sure. We've seen it. Yep. You know, my thought, I read the Gucci Mane thing last night. And, I, and my first thought, because I'm an old dude, was like, who the fuck tweets that you got $10 million? Right. Like, you deserve to get robbed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's the artist way, right? So you got Bow Wow, like, on the private plane. You have right. this thing. Like, right. So what, I, what I'm wondering is, like, <laughs> what makes you different? Like, what, where did you find the ability to create a different path for yourself? Where's that coming Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, part of it was how we're going back to what we were talking about, watching the artists and watching how things were handled. And one of the things that I saw super early in the 90s, uh, in early 2000s, was everyone had a manager. Yeah. And I saw the distributors. There was a distributor in the Valley named Ground Level who we ended yeah. up winning a lawsuit against. Uh, but... They they owed us money. They owed Hyro money. They owed all these people money, and they were they were basically in the wind. Yeah. And the managers of all these groups were dealing with them, and I we didn't have a manager, and so I was dealing with. You them. never had a manager. No, we never had a manager. Wow. Partly in in part in the beginning, just because I figured I can do it, it's easier. But I realized that like the managers might not have been negotiating in the best interests of the artists. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because they were taking settlements with the distributors just so that they could get their money and move on. Right. And yeah, I sure. was, I was like, no, sure. no, I need, you know. So then, I, and then I was like, man, you know, that was like the first time when I realized that, like, the business side is, is if the business goes south, it'll kill the artistic vision. Right. And so I don't trust a manager to handle that for us. I want to be in charge of that. So then I started handling a lot of the business things. But the biggest change happened when we started touring a lot. We were touring Europe a lot. And when you tour Europe a lot, you kind of get carted around. Mm -hmm. And in, we had a pretty big run in Europe. We did Glastonbury. We did Reading, Leeds. This was all prior to 2000. We, in 2001, we did Glastonbury with David Bowie and all these big people. Wow. And I was coming home. And I'd come home to L.A. And I still couldn't book a show for 150 bucks in, right. in L.A. Yeah. And so me and Mike, my partner, were talking like, man, this is not right. Like, I don't want to be famous in Europe. Yeah. I want to be here in the States where people know what I'm talking about, where, you know, it was. So we're like, well, what do we do? Well, we got to get an agent. So we found an agent who was willing to pick us up, Mike Morey, who mm -hmm. was working for the agency group at the time. And he was under Peter Schwartz. Mm -hmm. So we were like, man, we're we are Peter Schwartz, like early, you know, um, just epic yeah epic uh agent for, for, for sure. hip-hop acts arguably i think the first hip-hop artist agent maybe so yeah and so you know his assistant started 
taken on Axe, and we we basically I made a lot of promises to to Mike. I was like Mike Mori. I was like, you know, pick us up, put us on tour with someone. You know, we'll do the grunt work. We'll do whatever we have to do. We just want to start touring in the states. So he was like, all right. He was booking Calicom at the time. No, he was booking the Deltron tour at the time. Okay. So he said, how about you guys go and open for the Deltron tour? Yeah. Um, that I was like. 70 Perfect. cities, that sounds Perfect. amazing. Yeah. Uh, how much do we get paid? You get paid $200 a night. Yeah. So I'm doing the math, I'm like, dude, I, I don't think we can make it yeah. across the United States at 200 bucks a night. But we did it and we were able to do it because we didn't have a manager, we yeah. didn't have a merch guy. Yeah. So that really, that was, the, that was like, well, I guess I'll drive the car, we'll sit in a rental, we'll sell our own merch after every show and we can make it work on wow. $200 a night. Over time, 200 became 500, 500 became 1,000, we're second opener, then we're the headliner, and then I'm still managing, and yeah. it actually became really easy, but it was, it was really out of necessity and willingness to just work and learn that side of the industry. When we started doing colleges, they wanted to pay us in checks, right. and I was like getting these checks, and they were like, so who do we make the check out to? And I'm like, uh, neither of us because of taxes. Right. So then I talked to Mike, I was like, man, I got, we got to start like a business entity. We got to be able to take these checks. So then I started a corporation called PSOC and that basically became the people on the stairs touring business entity. So when mm -hmm. we rented a car, when I bought right, airplane right, right. tickets, all that, yeah. it started going on the Amex card for PSOC. And then when we started, then we're like, well, we need to make more merch. So next thing you know, like you go from being like an opener to then you're managing like a headline run. Yeah. And you're like, you know, you have accounts, you have merch, you have all this and that. So that was kind of, I just kind of fell into it, but I realized that I loved doing it and it didn't bother me. It wasn't a burden, yeah. you know, because I, I saw these other acts with managers, you know, and I'm like, Ugh. like at the end of the night, I'd be sitting there going over the numbers. Like how many did we do at the door? Right. What can we do better next time? And I think that really allowed us to tour the way we did, you know, we toured pretty strong for 20 years in the States and we went we went to the point where we could sell out shows in every city and there mm -hmm. weren't a lot, especially during the uh, recession. Mm -hmm. 2007, 2008, 2009, not a lot of people were out touring. Yeah. It was tough, you know, yeah. we were still out there pounding the pavement, playing Milwaukee and you know, like, wow. we did it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to do it again, but yeah. yeah that, sorry for the long rant, but that's no, how, no, that's no, how that's the great. business, how well, I fell into it, you know? I mean, that's great because, you know, I. I can relate. I mean, I started my career as a manager mm -hmm. and, you know, I think I can see that um, it's like, I think you have to work hard in that job to add value because you're in the sense, in the way. That's your job, yeah. right? Unless like, your artist really needs someone taking care of, which a lot of artists do. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. But, but I get it that, that like, you know, on the one hand, it's not your money. It's, it's part of your money as a manager, right? But so you're maybe not going to fight as hard. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, you know, I've had this conversation where you get opportunities that for the manager who's making 15, 20%, like you need that commission, but it's maybe not the best opportunity for the artist. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, so, no, I think there's definitely like some conflicts there that and like you said some artists you know can't get up in the morning yeah if they don't have somebody dragging them out of bed or right. whatever 
they can't get an airplane ticket because yeah. they don't have a credit card or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's for sure. It's for us because we we fell into that role early. We were able to do it. Um, but like the kids that I know now, they need managers. Like all of every single one of them. Yeah. Like they if they got offered a tour in Europe, they couldn't buy plane tickets to get there. Because you have to buy your plane tickets like three months out. Right. And that's something that, you know, the logis- you understand, it's the logistics of touring, the initial outlay that you have to make, where you have to book stuff way mm-hmm. ahead of time. Yeah. It's, it's an, it adds up. I mean, yeah. there, were, there were times where we would go out on the road and I'd be 10 grand in the hole before we even got on a plane. Right. Between all the flights that I had already purchased, the merchandise sure. I'd already made and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And that, that's, a, that's, you have to be willing to take that on. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. And then we also saw, you know, we toured with a, we headlined, but we also were always willing to open for someone much bigger than us, which I think a lot of acts weren't because they would put ego sure. ahead. Yeah, so of course. We were able to make decisions, which, eh, we made some bad ones, you know, but. What like, was your favorite tour that you went on? Well, favorite, not in a, not in a, in a good way but it, but it, good manager stories and stuff we there was a group called the flowbots yeah. i don't know if you remember them yeah yeah and they had this they were these young kids from colorado and they had this whole like anti-american like not anti-american but they were like you know america's in distress right. and this was during the the tail end of the bush era and it was really easy to be that group sure. at that time yeah their manager left almost ten thousand dollars in a hotel room in canada on accident oh shit and they called us and they were like, we need to go back, all of us. I'm like, we don't need to do anything. You guys left your money there. The money was gone. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, I'm sure. But it's just shit like that. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I can curse. No, no. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but we, we did a show in Ohio at like, I mean, they had a single on, on rock radio. And like K-Rock had added their song right at the beginning of the tour. So we were opening for them. And, uh, you know, the way the song was perceived on the coast was different than how it was perceived in middle America. Right, right, right. So we get out to, you know, Ohio. I forget where we were in the middle of Ohio, and we were playing some convention center, and all these white supremacists rolled up to the sh- Like, we were, we were backstage, and there was a balcony, and we could see the parking lot. Confederate flags, neo-Nazis, everyone's coming to the show because yeah. they were under the impression that the song was like a, like a throwback. Right. Like, so... <laughs> You know, that tour was, was, it was, it was interesting because we got to see this group who felt so strong that he, who lived, kids, they lived in a bubble yeah. and they got out in the real world yeah. and they realized that like, it didn't, it wasn't, you know, art was, it's not always like that. Sure. I mean, we hear that now as, as I talk to DJs mm-hmm. who fly around the country and play, right? And, and a lot of the kids in the clubs are, are Trump supporters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you, and you even got to think about your set. Yeah, you know. yeah, you got, you can't, I mean, things have become so polarized, I, yeah. I don't think you can assume, because you make hip-hop, or because you play dance music, or whatever it is, you can't just assume that you, when you roll up at your spot, that everyone's going to agree with you. We tackle rhymes like your life lays time, we trying to get it up, we gotta fill up, before it's all gone, the song remains on, until the beat stops, never mind, no need to remind, you know who we be. Yo, with the capital G's, putting the P's in hip-hop, saying hi to the hoes who wear hardly any clothes. Here's looking at you, watching you, watching me, the incredible MC. Chicks call me Mikey. Why is that? Because I like it. They stare when I'm digging it and know they want to try. They like the way I rap. They like the way I There's a Michael Rappaport video right now and, like, came out yesterday that, like, 
he's like yelling at people like, how can you be a hip hop fan and a, and a racist, right? How can that, how can that coexist in one person? Right. And, you know, and I get that thinking like, but there is a lot of those. There is a, there is a more <laughs> than I even realized, yeah, yeah. you know, I got, I got, a lo- I got legitimate death threats via Instagram and I'm not, you know, we've never been a very political group. Sure. We've kept that out of our music. Yeah. We've tried to be as inclusive as possible, which I think is one of the things that helped us stay around. Yeah. Um, but, you know, every once in a while I would say something. And I, I honestly, I was just trying to encourage people to vote mm-hmm. on Instagram. I was just like, mm-hmm. make sure you go out and vote. I don't care who you vote for. And people, you know, started arguing in the comments and it's, you know, and wow. every time you see, you know, I think what what's really been crazy in this cycle now that we're in is that people have an expectation of the artists that they love. Yeah. And when they find out that it doesn't fit that expectation, they get really ass hurt. Like, that's when you get guys dimebag daryling you on stage. Like, sure. they get, the fans can be a little bit over the top. Yeah. And, uh, you not all the artists are sensitive to that, but I think if you have a big fan base, you have to tread. I mean, it's easy to be political and stuff, but you got to tread light. You got to respect people's views, I think, you know. Yeah. Respect your fans, you know. Hey, if you're enjoying Thez One, let's stay on the underground hip-hop vibe as we go back into the Rebel Radio archives. Check out my interview with Slim Kid Trey from the far side. It's a few months back on iTunes or SoundCloud. Look for Rebel Radio. And, of course, let's finish up now with Thez One. So no, so when you, you you've talked about like, you know, advising or mentoring, mm-hmm. you know, other artists and knowing that some there's some people that need, let's say, a manager. Yeah. They right. Um, what's the advice you give those people? I think usually I ask them to be honest with themselves, and I ask them to consider what it means to self-manage, to self-release, mm-hmm. to self-label, and that means. You know, in part, are you willing to take a loan out to hire a publicist? Yeah. Or are you willing to put it on a credit card? Are you willing to buy plane tickets to a festival that's been booked in January, but it doesn't happen until, you know, August? Right. Can you shoulder that responsibility financially? Can you shoulder the responsibility of answering all the emails, doing things correctly? Because when you're getting ready to go to the festival, you've got the catering person, you've got all these people reaching out to you. Are you willing to correspond with these people? So what about if you, so let's say you need a manager, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, what is the right, like, you should watch your business anyway. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So how do you do that? How do, like, how would you advise somebody to do that, right? So they're going to hire a manager. They're right. not going to do everything themselves. But you still don't want to get taken advantage of. You still don't want, like your career to fall apart because you're not paying attention to it. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know. I don't I mean, it's know. Not a, it's not an easy question. No. So. And I mean, I would say that, you know, to be completely honest, both my wife, my family, a lot of my friends, their biggest complaint about me is that I'm incapable of sort of giving up control to other people. Like, yeah. You know, if if I'm like, hey, we need to we need to release a new T-shirt this fall, I've already taught myself how to learn use Illustrator and do graphic design. I'm right. upstairs at three in the morning doing the T-shirt right. instead of 
delegating the responsibility to other people. That's yeah. not only is that one of my biggest sort of I think flaws, but it's also one of the things that's kept us probably from sure. making it bigger. When we, you know, we just released, we just did a soft goods release, and um, we sell a lot of soft goods. So I made 350 hoodies. They sold in like 10 minutes. Nice. Then it took me a month to ship them because I ship them. Right. Because I don't trust someone to get in there and deal with the, because I have had interns and I've had people, especially, you know, like millennials got like a lot, they got like a really bad rap. But all my experiences with millennials, interns, was yeah. it was like dead nuts on. <laughs> like, and it happened a couple that's times, funny. and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. Just do it, yeah. Um, but well, that's not but, the right way always. But it's funny you say that, right? So, I, you know, I work with a lot of uh, really successful people, mm -hmm. and I know, and, and you hear, and, and there's a lot of that, right? There's a lot of perfectionism. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people yeah. that need to be in control. And what I always say to those people is, that's what got you to this point. Right, that if you didn't have that, yeah. and it's also what's going to keep you at this point. Yes. Right, and so it's it's like you have to. Well, what I say is like ask yourself, what are you giving up in order to keep doing it this way? Right, and and like and and what you know, how much risk are you willing to take that something goes wrong? Right in exchange for not having to do it yourself. Right. And every person has to find the right balance. It's not, you know, there's no right answer. No, and I, I mean, that's directly, you know, relates to, to your initial question is like, how do, you, how do you keep track of the business but also delegate the responsibility to a manager or assistant or whatever? And I'm the wrong person to ask. I'm a good <laughs> example of someone who stayed a middle-class musician because yeah. I haven't been able to put a team together that I that we can take to the next level. And I think if that would be the only thing, if I could go back and do it all over again, I might have set things up in a different way that if I were to die, the whole thing wouldn't die with me. Right. And that's the scariest thing. It's like, sure. I'm, I'm the only one who knows how to do all this stuff. And I've been right. really bad about teaching other people how to do it. Well, I mean, you know, there's always time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's true. But you know, you say middle-class musician, like that's a bad thing, but it's also like, it's also amazing to be able to live your life a certain way, doing what you love and, and you know, and support a family and a business yeah. doing that, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, there's millions of people that would love to have that. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, I've reconciled myself to the fact there'll never be a year where I make a million dollars off music, but there may be many years where we make a hundred thousand. Right. And that's, you know, I mean, like, yeah. it's not, Yeah. it's fine. Um, yeah. What, um, it doesn't so, fit into the art. Like, so my son now, he's, you know, he's, I've been doing this since before he was born. Right. And now he's in fifth grade. Yeah. And people say, what does your dad do? He's a rapper. Yeah. And they're like, they're like, oh. oh. And then they're like, then they look it up and they're like, yeah, he's not really, <laughs> he's not like Gucci, man. And he's like, you know, <laughs> it doesn't fit. Right. Where's the, where's the role? Yeah. Like your dad drives a rap. I see your dad dropping off in a rap four. Right. You know, like it's, it's. It's a weird thing. Well, I think, you know, none of us should be in the business of impressing our son's friends. No, that's no. That's not like... No, that's not, that's definitely not number one. <laughs> but it puts you in a weird thing when you're like, you know, go to the PTA meeting and everyone's introducing themselves with what they right. do. And I always lie. I'm always like, you know, they're like, so what do you do, Mr. Portugal? I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm in the uh, entertainment industry, work in production. I never, ever say anything about rapping. That's because funny. I, 
I don't want yeah, for parents sure. to be, you know, right. people are weird. I get it. So, but you have built a merch business and a touring business, which is two things that I think hip hop has done really poorly. Yes. Right? Yeah. Back to genres. Yeah. Um, how do you figure out what works and, and adjust accordingly? I mean, it's a great question because I think of all the genres, there wasn't a group that we could look at and go, they aged gracefully. Right. They did it right. There weren't. It doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. There were. There's. There are people who are still touring and who are healthy, which is in hip hop is, you yeah. know, like Master Ace is on tour somewhere right now. But there's like, I can name them on like one hand, the guys who passed the age of 40 and are healthy enough to still Even tour. Jay-Z's having trouble selling this tour. Right. So, which, is, which is like unfathomable, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, the rock band that's, that's 50 slots down lower than Jay-Z on popularity will kill it on tour every year. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a testament to what we were talking about way earlier that, you know, the, the ideas of this sort of giant sea change artist they don't fit into that lack of genre playlist pandora thing that this world we live in now it's you know i it's hard for me to imagine another taylor swift coming out yeah because i just feel like my daughter who's eight she'd much rather listen to like she's like all in like you know she's like oh i like SZA, but i like this one like mm -hmm. she's on some like or and she's eight yeah she's not waiting for the industry to tell her to like some new star right they're on YouTube going, they're, they're short attention span in there. And so I think the, the days of, of those stars, you know, like Beck drops a new album, which is dope, but Beck's new album is parallel with like the new, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's, no, there's no value in right. someone being a massive star anymore. Right. They get the same yeah. airplay, the sure. same amount of time. For sure. Have there been times along the way that you've, you've questioned the mission? Oh, yeah. Yeah, what, I mean, what I keeps you going? I promised my wife probably four times I would retire. Like yeah. Officially retire. <laughs> and she was like, well, what are you going to do after you retire? Uh, I was like, well, teach. Okay. Teach where? I'm like, I ate the college. There's a place. Yeah, yeah there's a place somewhere. Well, someone will want to listen to what <laughs> I have to say about this. But, uh, but then every time I would say that, without a doubt, the phone would ring and it'd be something like the first time this happened, we were about to get married. And I, I said, the week after we get married, we sell into our new house, I'm done. I'm done in the music industry, moving on. The fourth day of day seven, the phone rang and it was Mike Moore, our agent. He was like, he's like, hey man, I hope you're sitting down, you're not gonna believe this, but the Simpsons called and they want you guys to be on the 20th anniversary special alongside Flea and Hugh Hefner. Nice. And I was just like, uh, hold on. Hey, babe, I'm not retiring. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, and while you're in New York at the studio, I've got a college, in, you know, and then it was like, and then I'm like, all right, well, the retirement is postponed. Sure. And so having that happen so many times where yeah. something, uh, it, every time I feel down on it and I feel like, man, I should just stop, I know that there's the possibility that something will come yeah. unexpected. Sure. 
it's like playing a slot machine in that's, Vegas. That's great. I mean, keeps me going. That's a cool way to go out for <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so we were talking before about the competitive nature of hip hop, and I think you know, hip hop and, and graffiti. I've had a lot of graffiti artists on the show, and we mm. talk about like that. You know, it's the only art form like visual art where there's a battle. Right. And right, hip hop's right. kind of the same way, right? That right. it's just ingrained to that. So. Um, so I know you've had some battles with Will I Am. Yeah, yeah, we had issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, the B battle thing—they did three of the original ones, and we were slated to do the third one. But what they didn't realize when they booked it is that me and Will had already had some okay. run-ins. Yeah, and it had to do with a girl I was dating, and girl, uh, he was, okay. and it was like, you know, we just didn't like each other. Yeah. So there was an there was definitely an added element to that. Um, but for me, at least, the the energy that's drawn from that, and I'm sure the graph writers feel the same way. I mean, the thing that kept, I think, hip-hop evolving from the beginning was the competitive nature of it, was yeah. the battling. I mean, it's yeah. it's what made dudes stop wearing leather and <laughs> doing disco rap because the younger dudes were coming on and just wrapping a circle around it. You for know? sure. So I don't see that anymore in hip-hop, and I don't find inspiration in hip-hop because I don't feel competitive with Lil Uzi Pump or right. Lil Yacht or any Lil person. I there's no reason for me to. Uh, I don't feel any reason that there's no. You know what I mean? Like I'm right. not amped up. Yeah. By it. Yeah. So you know, I, it's kind of a bummer that that doesn't exist. And I think that having a scene in a genre like underground hip hop, I think it was really good for that. You know, mm -hmm. a new 12 inch would come out and they would be like, "Oh, did you hear that new 12 inch?" Now it's like. I listen to every. I listen to stuff that comes out. And I'm like, that's cool. I'm just gonna keep making my music. But I wish it would come back. Like I wish someone would come and diss me super hard, so I could get in the studio and be like, all right, oh, you know, light a fire under my ass. You know. All right, you hear that? Somebody, somebody, give it to him. Somebody diss 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 the sweatshirts I made, or <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. Um, there's nice. it doesn't seem life or death anymore. Like, I, there was a period in time where hip-hop felt life or death to me. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it used to, I remember, you know, when the Meek Mill-Drake thing was happening, yeah. and it was like, well, you know, I remember talking to people about, like, 10 years ago, that would have ruined one of them's career. Yeah, that would have ruined Milk's, Meek's career, done. for sure, right? Yeah. Now it's ruined for other reasons, but... Um, Same thing with Nicki Minaj and, like, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and now, like, the, you know... The Eminem thing, I thought was cool. I'm glad he did that, uh, you know, the Trump thing and whatever. Right. But it wasn't like, you know, it didn't have the fire of a lot of his other uh, diss records. No. You know what I mean? And and I think some of that is is just probably where he's at. But some of it is also like, you know, there wasn't some dude that's going to fire back and Although I don't, he was, he probably wasn't worried about Nick Cannon firing back either. Right. I so. mean, I, it's just the whole thing is kind of homogenized, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's TV shows where they rap battle. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like, yeah. there's a big difference between a TV show with a rap battle and the bitch in you. A bitch nigga with an attitude named Q tried to step to the con with a few. What the fuck I look like this in a whole coast? You ain't made shit dope since America's most. Wanted to cease 
From the Midwest to the East on the dick of the East for your first release. Your lease is up at the crib house. Niggas get a big I thought they were going to shoot him yeah. because of that record. I'm like, dude, you went hard Maybe. on this dude. Yeah. Calling him a bitch and his mom. I mean, yeah. like going yeah, yeah, yeah. ham on someone on record. Yeah. Or toss it up or like. Yeah. 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 Uh, like, I mean, there's so many diss records. So For many. Sure. Like just some of them super regret like cringeworthy. When you listen to it, you're like, fuck, dude. Like, it's gnarly. All right. I got to get to a lightning round before we get out of here. All right. Um, tell me one decision to change your life forever. signing to own records okay because we you know we would have we would own the rights to san francisco nights we'd own the rights to uh acid raindrops all these songs that have made them millions of dollars over the years and yeah if if, if a portion of that had come into our pocket my life would be slightly different right for now. sure yeah yeah when the stress burns my brain just like acid raindrops mary jane is the only thing that makes the pain stop just let the music take over your soul body and mind and kick back relax one time and you will find i try to keep it stress-free take every day at a time make sure the family's in place and let the music unwind i got plans to take charge like major outlets ride around the country chilling in my la express on every street corner complete this sentence I don't have talent, I have blank. That's my story of my life. I don't have talent, I have just business drive. Like, you know, like I, I make up for my lack of talent with just the willingness to work. Okay, that's good. So if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? Uh, let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, let me do it. Right. <laughs> Horrible, man. Uh, who would you be most excited to learn as a fan of yours? Um, Barack Obama. Now, I could see it too. I could kind of see it happening. You yeah. know, I'm sure he would jam out to some of our music. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite city to travel to? Probably Honolulu. Mm. So. Yeah. They have, a, they have a great scene out there. They've got great yeah. promoters. And yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, it doesn't feel as competitive, like, promotion-wise out there. Like, I feel like mm -hmm. when, when an artist comes to Hawaii, all, everybody is, like, celebrates it. Yeah. Here, if, like, you're with, if you're at one venue, the other right, venues right. are like, oh, well, it looks like we're not booking you ever again. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, is there a book that's had uh, the biggest impact on you? Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's called A Surfing Life by Finnegan. Mm. And um, he writes for The New Yorker now, but it's, it's, a, it's about his life as a surfer and exploring. There's a lot of parallels to, to making music and touring, you know? So that, was, nice. that book had a huge impact on me. Cool. What movie do you think you've seen the most in your life? Just be a toss-up between Caddyshack, Beat Street, and this movie called Fly By Night, which is the best, worst hip-hop movie ever made. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, uh, if anyone hasn't seen Fly By Night, I highly recommend checking it out. I was trying to show my son Beat Street over the weekend. We didn't we ended up watching something else, but we'll, we'll Street, get there. Beat Street's great. People can say what they want about Beat Street. I know it's 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 people like to go back and go, well, that wasn't a real hip-hop movie. Wild Style is a better movie. But if you were a kid... Yeah. And that was your experience. Sure. Like, it's an amazing movie. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Fly by night. I'm going to look for that. Yeah, Fly by night's horrid. I don't know it. But it's, it's good in okay. a bad way. Yeah. I mean, Caddyshack's amazing. Classic movie. Yeah. For sure. 
<laughs> hey, dog, could you scare up another round for our table over here and tell the cook this is low-grade dog food, all right? And here, take this for yourself, okay? Jeez, I had better food at the ball game, you know? <laughs> I tell you, this steak still has marks where the jockey was hitting. Um, who's your favorite DJ? Uh, J-Rock. So, yeah. Followed by uh, Z-Trip and, um, and Jazzy Jeff and yeah. DJ Day and, like, just a bunch of friends. But I would say J-Rock, for sure. Dope. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate yeah, thanks, you thanks for having being me. here. Yeah. Um, how's everybody find you? Best way to, to, to follow the merch releases is to follow me on Instagram. Okay. And that's uh, peace, at PeaceLock70. Or if you just search for Thess1, you'll find me on there. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. Pretty much just picked one lane and I do that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, we... Is that we, a good idea for artists? I think. I think so because I think you know this. The phone is a huge distraction. Yeah. And I think if you're managing three accounts, you're you don't have time. Boredom is the like impetus for all creativity. The mm. border you are, the easier it is to I think create art. And I think that this takes boredom out of our lives, and we're just constantly tuned in. And it's amazing. Can't make music like that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Ah, that's good. That's good advice. Yeah. Hopefully, I don't. Know. <laughs> I try to make myself as bored as possible. <laughs> nice. Hey, that was Thez One on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Uh, make sure you leave us a comment on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net. Leave us a review on iTunes. We'll take your five stars. And uh, you can find us on Facebook as well. Check out our YouTube page. Most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace. <laughs>